following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. It's great to see you guys. And Thursday mornings is always something I look forward to because I can't remember what happens. I'm just so sleepy. But it, it's uh, one of the great privileges of my life to study something and then share it with the guys as I'm studying through it for my own life. It's, it's one of those areas where I look forward to Warrior's Heart because this is my personal fresh study of the Word of God. And as I think about this uh, passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying today, uh, I'm, I uh, think back on, on my years of living in the state of Oregon. So I lived in Oregon almost a quarter century of my life. Went there to college and uh, entered the ministry there, uh, taught there at a university, seminary setting, and um, it was a, a big chunk of my life when Yvonne and I welcomed the three lives of our children that God brought to us and gave it to us. But Oregon, while it's a beautiful state and it's a great place for out of doors, it's not, it wasn't at that time a very good state for football. The college football scene in Oregon for almost that quarter of a century was awful. In fact, the Oregon Ducks and the uh, Oregon State Beavers were sort of the doormat of, of college football. The other teams in the Pac-8 at the time loved coming up to play Oregon or loved inviting Oregon to play them because it was almost a guaranteed win. They just count those off as wins as they anticipated their season. So that, that changed, though, with, uh, with Kelly's com- coming to Oregon. And Chip Kelly came and brought a, a really interesting philosophy that caught on it captured the attention of a lot of the Ducks. So instead of being the doormat, uh, the Ducks became a fashion trend for not only winning an amazing, exciting football, but also the way that their uniforms were. Well, there was something new that the Oregon Duck fans had to learn to experience, and that is when you become successful, it's a different kind of phenomenon. So no longer are you desperate and people feel sorry for you and they kind of chuckle and giggle behind your back. But now when you're a leader and you're a national power, then people put you on a target. They, they make you the target of a, of, of a position where they place you on a pedestal and they can't, can't wait to knock you off. So at those kinds of moments, then other teams start to look forward to you as a means to a greater end to climb their own national prominence position. So earlier this, this year, Oregon was fourth in the national rankings and they were going to play... Uh, the University of Utah, the University of Utes. And it was a pretty exciting game because the Ducks were coming to visit in Utah. And everybody in Utah was excited because they figured if they could beat the Ducks, it would give them a, a huge leg up on their national reputation. So when the game started, the, the fans were absolutely horrendous. You could hardly hear anything that was going on. And the Utes were playing with a, a high-pitched sense of, of fervor and passion, and they got the first score so it was 7-0, and uh, they were fighting around, and the, and the Oregon Ducks couldn't get anything going. It was three and out, and when they punted the ball, the Utes got it, and then they, they were going through a series of different plays, and their quarterback, who was fairly talented, threw a, a, threw a pass, and one of their number one receivers caught the ball, and he was so fast. It was amazing how fast he was. And he was racing down the field, and everyone in the crowd was getting excited, They were all on their feet. The newscasters and the broadcasters on national TV were jumping into all of it. This guy runs across the end zone, and he's celebrating 
the touchdown. So it's like, man, oh man, the Utah, they're ahead of the Oregon Ducks, 14 to nothing. And the wonderful celebration that was going on and everyone was all excited about it. And um, it's one of those kinds of moments when uh, Kayleen Clay, who was the receiver, was counting on the fact that he now had the 78-yard touchdown reception pass. But there was one little, one little wrinkle in that particular episode, and, and that comes uh, in, the, in the process of this event. Kayleen was coming into the, to the, over the goal line, and he was so excited he started to celebrate a, a, way too early. Well, actually not way too early, just one yard early. So he drops the ball, thinking he's already crossed the finish, the, the goal line, and he's celebrating with all his other fellow teammates, as well as the thousands of fans who were on in that stadium, and the thousands of Utah fans who are watching on television. And everyone is listening to the commentators saying, wow, they're ahead, but the, the Ducks almost 14 to nothing. Unbelievable. They're taking the fourth ranked team in the nation. And then I remember listening to that and saying, this is, this is really rough, a rough start for the good, good old Oregon Ducks. And then one of the news broadcasters says, hey, hey, what's going on on the field there? Well, while everyone was celebrating early, the line judge was paying attention to his job. And he, did, he gave no signal, made no attempt to say anything, but the ball was fumbled because Clay dropped it on the one-yard line, and the ball was just sitting there in the end zone. And so one of the Ducks, smart enough to figure out, hey, you know, the line judge doesn't say anything. So he picks the ball up. At the same time, about three or four of his teammates saw what was happening, and they gave this guy a convoy down the, end of the, to the other end of the field. And so he's running along here with the ball and about three or four different guys around him. And they had probably the smallest player in the Utah team was the only guy that was left. And I think that one of the Ducks growled at him and the guy fell down. And so the Oregon Ducks go all the way down for 100 yards the other direction, score a touchdown, while the rest of the Utah team is still celebrating what they thought was a touchdown. And this is the, the best picture of the reaction of the Utah fans. It is, it is amazing to me that when you think about something that all of us guys can relate to, which is sports, and you think about football, and, and, and the, they interviewed the coaches after the game, and everyone was talking not about the loss because the, the Oregon Ducks trounced them, but they were all talking about that one particular play when Clay dropped the ball one yard before he got into the goal line. And the coach says, what happened? And one of the most amazing little snippets in that entire interview, the coach says, we train our guys that when you score, you finish off your scoring by handing that ball to the referee. You hand the ball to the referee. Then you know that you're done. Now the coach says, we can coach these guys all we can. We can coach them up, coach them up, repeat it, repeat it. But until our players receive it and apply it, doesn't do any good. So hopefully from now on for the rest of his life when he plays football, he will remember that when you when you cross that goal line, it is not finished until you hand that ball to the referee. You do not play your way. You play to receive the coaching from those who know the game. It's about reception and whether or not we're going to receive the information that we've been given. It is an amazing phenomenon when we think about that particular story. 
Because in our particular passage of Scripture today in Mark chapter 6, it's all about how faith is indicated by our receptivity. Whether or not we're going to receive the information that we've been given by a supernatural source that this is how faith is supposed to be lived. And we can think about it, we can assume it, we can hopefully maybe just hide from it. But unless we receive faith the way that God gives it to us, we really can't accomplish it in any other way. So in Mark chapter 6, we have an amazing passage of Scripture that teaches us about how we can, as individuals, receive the lesson on faith from how God presents it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he's going to go through three different episodes on this idea of receptivity of how faith can be functioning in the life of someone who's uh, trying to feel, figure out how in the world do I live my life for Jesus Christ. Well, the scripture tells us that when Jesus Christ left in that particular area where he was having some of his ministry, the Bible says in Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. That's key. It gives to us a sense of geographical uniqueness that the town of Nazareth, where Jesus Christ is from, this is his hometown, and the familiarity with the people who live there, that's going to play into this whole process about faith. Verse 2, when the Sabbath came, the right time, he began to teach in the synagogue, the right place, and many who heard him were amazed. That is the right reaction. The right place, the right time, the right reaction. They thought, wow, this guy, he, in his teaching, has captured our attention. But then their reaction started to corrode. There was, a, there was an erosion of the confidence of their natural reaction to how Jesus Christ taught. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him that he even does miracles? So they recognized all the symptoms and they responded appropriately with amazement. But all of a sudden, things began to change. They started to use natural reason to try to interpret the amazing things that they sensed about Jesus Christ. They saw, they sensed, they observed, but then they started to put natural reasoning to a supernatural presentation. Now, gentlemen, when we go to the workplace right after this session's all over, we're hoping that God will do a supernatural miracle in your life to allow you to live your life of Jesus Christ in faith in front of all your other co-workers. They are going to see it. If you live it the way God has taught you through all the years of preaching, teaching, studying, your personal time, your fellow workers will see it. But there's going to be a battle and a resistance. They are going to try to justify in their minds why you are so different. They'll observe it. They'll be amazed and attracted to the supernatural presentation of your light shining. But they are going to try to justify in their own minds an explanation of why they can dismiss what they have been seeing in your life. Any testimony that we give for Jesus Christ in this world will be met with a resistance and a debate in the minds of the people who are observing. That's exactly what this scripture is teaching us. So they say, isn't this the carpenter? Natural guy. He's just like us. In fact, my occupation's above that one. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Hey, he can't go beyond me. That comparative issue is strong among us as human beings. And really strong among us as human beings when you don't have a supernatural rebirth experience. So those who are around us who, aren't, who are not born again, 
when they see anything supernatural from Almighty God, the sin nature kicks in and they try to justify and dismiss any responsibility they might have to face squarely, nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball, a presentation or a presence of the supernatural presence of Almighty God. So they took offense at him. Negative reaction is a result of this erosion of justification against the presence of God that's calling them to a response. Only in his hometown, Jesus said, among his relatives in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. When we look at this story and we can observe some of the important features about it, Jesus Christ was doing everything correctly. Culturally, religiously, Christ was right on target. And the reaction of the audience initially was correct. They sensed supernatural presence and they were amazed by it. That was very, very good. And when they contemplated the reaction, the wonder that they had, not only what Christ did, but at what Christ taught, they were properly impressed. Now, as a result of all that, however, they took offense because that's the normal reaction when sin begins to take hold again of the mind and the hearts of those who are initially attracted to supernatural spiritual things. And Jesus Christ says a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, relatives in his own home. Now, there's a cause-effect relationship with this particular passage of Scripture, and we need to pay attention to this. A cause-effect relationship, and that is when anyone dishonors a supernatural presence, there is an amazing constriction of the freedom of God's blessing that he wants to pour out in the lives of people. Limited, miraculous ability. Now, gentlemen, this is a really important question for us to ask in a story like this, because faith is something we all want. Faith is something that we all hope we would grow in. But sometimes we have turned our back on one of the greatest descriptions of whether or not that symptom of faith growth is present in our life. And that's simple. The symptom of whether or not faith is present in our life is, hey, is anything going on in our life that's supernatural? Is anything in our life going on that's supernatural? And from what Jesus Christ presents here in this story, whenever there is a low presence of the supernatural presence of God, there is a low presence of faith. Now, that's a, that's a telling commentary on what's going on in the lives of many of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. If the presence of a supernatural presence is very limited, maybe it is because our faith in God is limited, replaced by our natural reaction to anything that's supernatural outside of what I might get credit for. If I can't deal with it, if I'm not the center of attention, if I'm not the focus of what God wants to do, then maybe it really is nothing that I'm going to look forward to as, nah, it's nothing. I might just simply ignore it. Our receptivity of spiritual supernatural truth sometimes just has us on the peripheral looking in why God works through the life of someone else. If I'm not willing to accept that, if I'm not willing to let someone else rise above where I am supernaturally and spiritually, Maybe I am corrupting the opportunity for God's supernatural presence 
that manifests itself in the situation where I find myself. It's an amazing story. Well, Jesus Christ does something pretty special here. He sends out his disciples to two by two for practical reasons. And he wants to authenticate their preachings. Jesus Christ gives them this example of what's happening in his life. Uh, The people are rejecting Christ. Even though they see and hear him, they reject him. So Jesus Christ knows that this is a lesson he's given his disciples. So now he gathers his disciples and he sends them off two by two. And he prepares them for the reality of accepting rejection, just like they saw him receiving in his hometown. And he does that by telling them, okay, you're going to go off and represent the same good news that I've been preaching, and you're going to do it. And you're going to do it also with the authentication of supernatural, spiritual manifestations. They are not an end in itself. That's not why you're going out there to possess the people. That's a validation of the message that you're going to be giving them. But your dependence is upon that truth and upon my commission of you. It's not dependent upon your own ability. That's why I want you to go... Don't take anything with you. Uh, Don't take an extra staff. Uh, Don't take an extra coat. Don't bring any extra food. Just go very light. And depend upon the hospitality of people because hospitality in the New Testament, very clearly an expression of spiritual aliveness. And so Christ is preparing them for rejection, saying to them, when you go out there and you're going to be preaching, it's not going to fill up stadiums full of people. Some people will believe, and that's what we're really hoping for but there will be some people who will reject you. And as Christ is explaining all this to his disciples, they're thinking to themselves, wow, yeah, you know, they're going to reject Jesus. Who do I think I am? So Christ prepares them for the lack of receptivity that comes in the supernatural realm. So you guys are probably, you could probably easily think of the people that you have come across in your life that you want to share the gospel with. And sometimes they just are, are, have want, they want nothing to do with it. Say, yeah, yeah, that's good for you, and yeah, yeah, that's terrific, but hey, just leave me alone about that. And you want to try to convince them, don't try. Wait for them to be hungry and open for spiritual, supernatural truth. They already know where you are, but if they do not receive the good news that you bring with your life and with your testimony, do what Jesus Christ says with these guys. Leave them alone. Eventually, they'll come back if that is what's going to be happening. So Christ tells them, go ahead and shake off your feet, uh, shake off the dust wherever you're not welcomed, and remember that rejection is not unusual. I received it, and it is the problem of another person's sin, not the effectiveness or the accuracy of your message. So when we look at this second section here in Mark uh, chapter 6, Christ sends them out with this amazing technique and this uh, very practical sense that you don't get discouraged when you're with someone who's there to share the experience. They're given authority over the evil spiritual world, and that supernatural impact is going to validate the truth of the message. And they are to travel light in the sense of their dependence is not on what they could do, but their dependence is on the message that Jesus Christ has given them, and the reaction of those who would receive it right are going to be hospitable in their receptivity of the messenger. Shake off the shoes in the place because this place was not at all welcoming. And the powerful ministry of preaching and healing will have its effect wherever God wants it to happen. Now, the third category that we have here in this passage of Scripture about the whole business of receptivity is an amazing one. It's very, very long compared to these first two. 
It talks about the bad influences that compromise our receptivity. And oftentimes it's other people and the circumstances that we're in that causes faith not to flourish or to take root. So we have this amazing story of uh, John the Baptist, uh, which is a backstory or a story that they go back and revisit because Herod is now responding to the very strong, popular notion of who Jesus Christ is. Herod understands this whole business of Christ's popularity, and he goes back to his own personal guilt because of John the Baptist. And then the story in Mark goes back historically to trace what it is that's bothering the conscience of Herod. And the conscience of Herod is that he's married to the wrong woman because he took his brother Philip's wife Herodias and married her. And John the Baptist, being a man of righteousness, kept on coming up to Herod and saying, this is wrong. It is not right for you to have Herodias, your brother Philip's wife, as your wife. And the scripture is very specific in this passage of scripture, and it gives a great description that Herodias, this wife of Philip, now the wife of Herod, she nursed a grudge against John the Baptist. And when it says she nursed a grudge, the context of the passage of Scripture makes it very clear that we know who one of the primary recipients of her complaining was. So if you're here today and, you have a, and you're blessed to be married, but your wife has, has, has something, a burr under her saddle, and she's complaining about something, and every time she comes to church, everyone thinks, oh my goodness, what a lovely lady, uh, sweet, wonderful, positive. And then when she gets back in the car, she begins her, her tirade against of her grudge against some other person. And you as a husband, initially you are strong. But the grudge of any woman that is nursed will wear down the strongest of men. So you're thinking about what she is annoyed about And Herod is in that particular situation, and Herod is trying to keep his strength, he's trying to keep his his position up, and the only reason why her plans to kill John the Baptist are unsuccessful is because Herod is protecting him, because he knows John the Baptist is right, and what he represents is good. But then Herod is in a very vulnerable situation, circumstantially and interpersonally, that comes together to break down his resistance. Circumstantially and interpersonally, Herod finds himself in a situation where it breaks down his resistance to do what is right. So he's having a great party. John the Baptist is having a wonderful time celebrating his own birthday. And his daughter-in-law, Herodias' daughter, she's dancing, and she does a great job, captures his attention, He shoots off his mouth and says, you did such a great job. I want to reward you, show you my thanks. Name anything that you want, and I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. So the daughter runs over to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And Herodias smiles, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the daughter who has just mesmerized not only her mom and her stepdad, but all the high-level guests at the party, Everyone who's heard the promise that Herod's given to her. And she goes back and she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. So John the Baptist is executed because Herod is more interested in keeping his reputation among men than he is knowing about keeping what is right before God because he operates now on what the eye can see. And he compromises on what his heart 
knows is true. Receptivity, gentlemen, it is when we are the people who recognize that faith manifests itself by a supernatural presence in our life, consistently, when God is doing something in our life. The supernatural sense of our receptivity is when we know that, yeah, it's not always going to be easy. There's going to be rejection, and I'm prepared for that. But I don't just stop because of a rejection and a stoppage. I keep on going. And I am convinced that I will never compromise what God gives to me in supernatural spiritual truth because of circumstances or bad commitments by the people that I surround myself with. One of the most amazing things when I think about the way that we should apply a lesson like this is what, what would we feel like if somebody who was lesser known, less, edu- less educated, and coming off of a, more, of a, more of a disadvantaged background, someone that I'm very familiar with, maybe someone in my family, maybe someone in our small group that really no one really respected much, and all of a sudden, bam, supernaturally, God's doing something in that life. Well, I look at that person and say, Maybe one of the greatest privileges God's ever given to me is for me to come alongside someone who has lesser of a reputation than me and elevate them to a position where God is obviously using them. Well, I say from a natural perspective, nah, let's just keep them there for a little while. Or where's the enthusiasm that we might have if the church that we go to brings up three or four people and say, these people have been called for the ministry. The leaders in our church recognize that. We want to help them along in the ministry so it is a great, great opportunity for them to advance the cause of Christ. Where's the thrill inside when we see God using others for the purpose of ministry? Or will we go to our own hometown and show no higher regard for those that God chooses who are lesser than me from the eyes of our human look? When will we go to work and we will say to ourselves, there is never a time when I will humanly compromise my commitment to faith simply because I'm afraid of how certain people in this community where I am will respond to what happens when faith is present. So your boss comes in and says, we're not going to use the phrase Merry Christmas anymore. It is more accurate and correct for us to say Happy Holidays. So we don't want to elevate the name of Christ in any form because it might be offensive to other people. Where are we going to be when it comes down to the time of actually using the name of Jesus Christ in any kind of context, whether it's popular or unpopular? Where is, when we look back on our track record, the last week of our life, the last month of our life, the last year of our life, how much is a supernatural presence of Almighty God in our personal history? If faith is present... If true faith is active in our life, there will be a presence of a supernatural work of God because when faith is present, God does his work and no one can stop it except to cramp the expression of faith in the lives of those who claim to be his followers. Have a great time in your table talk, guys.
Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.